Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 triple R. Listening maybe via rrr.org.au. My name is Bron Burton. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Yes, so, we are. And? Good morning, everybody. Good this is Fum good with morning, you Fum. today. <laughs> How are you feeling? I am feeling um, physically fuzzy <laughs> and emotionally very happy. Excellent. <laughs> I was having a, a chat to Kent, who is panelling for us today, um, and uh, also known sometimes... <laughs> panel beater and uh, we're talking about how um, people in Melbourne right now are kind of in one of two camps they've either gone like rushing out and embracing and kind of making up for 77 days of lost time yeah that was me last night yeah or they're kind of going yeah I'll get there that's me (laughs) yeah I'm in the I'll get there camp yeah and it's so interesting it's not from anything conscious either it's just like oh yeah I think I'm so far in the zone I'll just continue to plod along in the zone for a bit longer and yeah yeah totally get that you know you really got to take your time stepping out again uh, which did not apply for, to me last night. We went to uh, <laughs> South Melbourne Market in the in the daytime mm. and thought, oh, we'll just get some, we'll just get a little bit of cheese and crackers. And we ended up spending <laughs> way too much on cheese and all kinds of nice things to bring to the party. And then we had to buy some really nice champagne and all that. We just went completely, just got completely out of hand. I'll be honest. Are you surprised about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not whatsoever, but it was fantastic. We just had to get together with friends who we hadn't seen for so long and everybody was so happy. And even at the markets, people were so happy to be out and, you know, lots of people were doing the same thing, buying nice treats for get-togethers with family and friends. So it was a really festive atmosphere. Wonderful. Mm. I'm heading down to Mornington after the show to uh, see my mum. It's her birthday today. Oh, happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. I'll say that on behalf of yeah. Mum. Thank you. Hel- also known as Helen of Mornington because she's been a Triple R subscriber for a very long time. Oh, for yonks. Yeah, I know. And, um, yes, uh, heading down to see Mum for her birthday. I'm going to play her a track in a minute. But, yeah, same thing. And just the just the timing of it, she couldn't believe it that <laughs> this is all happening a week early and she's actually going to get to see her family for her birthday. But, but yeah, just actually getting out there and getting to see people again, it's quite quite amazing. Yeah. Even more so than last year, I reckon. Maybe because we've done so many of them now. Yeah, last last year was longer, but this one felt longer. It did. Didn't it? it did. I think because yeah, we knew what we were going into as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, um, and hopefully the last one. So there so you go. yay Melbourne, party yay. party. <laughs> <laughs> when you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks very much, Tim Thor, for wonderful vital bits, and uh, uh, and Andrew for uh, soulful bits. Was there soulful bits this morning? No. Yes, there was. I must have zoned out right at that point. <laughs> thanks, Tim. I did have the radio on. I must have been all lost in my own thoughts. Um, yes, thank you. You can catch Tim next weekend, of course, for two more wonderful Vital Bits programs from 6 till 9, Saturday and Sunday, and uh, on today's program. Um, it's funny how this happens with Marinara. We often have themes that emerge, and um, Tim was talking talking about themes a bit earlier today, and, of course, JVG has his themes, which are the, the, the basis of his show every Sunday afternoon. But we sometimes get themes that just emerge, and we kind of don't plan them. They just sort of happen that way. Yeah, it kind of just happens organically. Yeah, sometimes we do, but usually we don't. Anyway, today's theme, as it turns out, is 
uh, kind of ocean defence, marine defence. Mm -hmm. So in this case, um, we're going to be speaking with Rex Hunter in just a moment. He's our maritime heritage expert. He's going to be talking about some incidents that happened in Bass Strait through the early 1940s as part of World War II and uh, particularly the flight of a Japanese uh, Glen float plane over Melbourne. Oh. which uh, was kept very quiet at the time. Interesting. Mm. Mm, I can't wait to learn about that. Yeah. We are then going to be speaking with uh, Jordan Gagutan from the University of New South Wales. He's a PhD student there and he's been uh, leading a project that has looked at 10 years of information from the Australian Marine Debris Initiative set up by Tangaroa Blue 15 odd years ago, I think it was. Yeah. Wow. Um, and as a result of that, it's created one of the largest marine debris databases in the Southern Hemisphere. And from this work, a national map has been created by Jordan and his team of patterns in marine debris all around the Australian coastline. That's so exciting, isn't it? Because that's the thing with science, like data is only information until you are able to analyse it and tell the story. So I can't wait to hear about that's this. Right. And then you, ne- then you know where to go next. Yeah, that's yep. right. Uh, and then farm, very exciting news. Oh, yes. So uh, we have started a new project at the Eco Centre for this uh, for this year um, that is called the, well, I need a better working title than this, but <laughs> I've called it the Marine Pest Rapid Response Team, where uh, we will be setting up volunteer teams all over the bay uh, who can respond very quickly and efficiently and safely to uh, massive aggregations of Northern Pacific sea stars that have been washing up for the last few years. Uh, this work is already happening by some excellent community legends around the bay. Um, but there hasn't really been an, an organised effort to do it in other places, you know, that's outside of their patches. Um, so I'll be chatting a little bit about that, what the project is about, and also how you can get involved, because we can get back into the bay again now. <laughs> so exciting. Mm. Jackie Young has been doing that. I tried to line her up for the show today, but she um, she rightly predicted she was going to be having uh, a very, very big uh, a very quiet morning after a very big night before. That's right. Jackie, don't go in the water today. It's unsafe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll catch up with Jackie in due course, but she's she's part of this group, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's one of the inspirations as well as uh, Julianne Stewart from Earthcare St Kilda, who've, who's been leading this kind of work for many years now. So very excited to have um, those wonderful women involved. Excellent. Great show. Yes. So we're, de- we're talking defence, of course, uh, historical defence, but also um, against uh, yeah, marine, plastics. Yeah, plastics, marine pests. And marine pests. Uh, now, would you have some weather forecast details in front of you? Fran? I do. It's, uh, I'm a little bit scared to say it because it looks pretty dismal outside. But uh, Melbourne today, top of 15 degrees, partly cloudy. Uh, we have fog about the nearby hills early in the morning and a medium chance of light showers in the morning, which we've already seen here at the studio. Uh, but it will be easing to a slight 20% chance in the afternoon and evening. Winds are southwesterly, 20 to 30 k's an hour. Um, tomorrow will actually be very similar uh, uh, as today, 15 degrees as well but it's getting better. So 21 degrees on Tuesday, 27 on Wednesday, Oof. and then back to 25 on Thursday. So we're going to see some really nice weather coming up in uh, in, in Melbourne. Uh, for the tides, Port Phillip Heads, the next low tide is uh, actually uh, four minutes ago, uh, four past nine this morning. Next high will be uh, three uh, 10 past 3 in the afternoon and if you uh, want to go for a snorkel or to the water in the north of the bay Bo Morris next low is 12.40pm and the next high is 5.54pm but just make sure you check uh, the conditions and the water quality as well because we've had a lot of rain so before you get in there in the bay just check the water quality in your area. 
might be a bit blur. Yes. Yeah. Have got a uh, weather forecast from Cliff in Antarctica. These are going to wind up soon because Cliff is going to come back. We have to have him in. Yes. Immediately. Yes. As soon as he gets off the boat. (laughs) We missed you, Cliff, last week. Um, He was out and about doing stuff. So um, he's got a couple of little notes here. I'll just read the forecast first. And uh, heading for minus six degrees air temperature uh, with the wind chill factor still minus six because it's zero wind, zero knots. And gusting to zero knots, so very still. It doesn't get much more still than that, does wow. it? But still with 90% humidity. So he says, um, uh, oh, great photos. Oh, they're kicking a footy. Awesome. <laughs> no blizzards means footy time. Yeah. Oh, excellent. I'll post that. Oh, that might be from last time, but I'll put that on our Facebook page. Thank you, Cliff. He says, morning, days are getting longer and warmer. Our first flight, new expeditioners and vaccine will, weather permitting, be landing on Wednesday, which occurred to me, Farm, they haven't had vaccines because they've had no contact. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they're preparing to come back by by getting vaccinated over there. Yeah. Yeah. Four weeks to go and I'll be able to go diving and hug a tree, he says. <laughs> and, of course, they haven't seen trees for all that time too. Oh, that is so strange just Amazing, thinking about it? that. Yeah. And a little report from what he was doing last week. Had to go and help set remote cameras at one of the penguin rookeries. It's not as glamorous as it sounds, yet we get that cliff most marine research never is. <laughs> no. A hard, cold slog in crap conditions grew the things we do for science yeah, yeah that's right we are ever grateful for the work that you do <laughs> are you there rex hi rex <laughs> good thanks we've been tripped up by skype this morning but we've got you on um, we've gone back to our old school telephone so great to have oh, you with yeah. us however we can yeah. get you <laughs> yeah. well yeah it took, a, it took a bit to stretch out those two tin cans and pieces of string so i can hear you <laughs> Semaphore. It should be semaphore. Let's keep it maritime. Um, so we've given this a bit of a promotion already. So um, World War Two incidents in Bass Strait, um, particularly through the 1940s. Yes, yes. Um, as, as we all know, World War Two began in sort of 1939 and then with Germany invading Poland and then um, Japan attacking uh Pearl Harbor, so that dragged the Americans in as well. The previous, previous to that, yeah, you know, we're thousands and thousands of miles away from all this. This, so um, we're sort of completely, well, not completely unprepared, but sort of semi-unprepared for uh, what was about to happen. Because uh, in the first couple of instances, the uh, Germans sent a couple of auxiliary mine layers out to Australia, and they were travelling around the world world in disguise and, uh, you know, travelling here, travelling here. They went over to New Zealand and they actually dropped, I think it was something like 100 minefields all all around um, Australia, New Zealand and all through the sort of Pacific. And um, two, of their, two of their targets in Bass Strait were, you know, the main shipping lanes of off Cape Otway and then off um, Wilson's Promontory, which all ships travelled through if they're going, you know, either, either way to, to Melbourne. And uh, so, sort of late, late October, 1940, the, uh, they mined, yeah, mined off the prom, and then off, as I said, Cape Otway. And a couple of days later, in early November, the um, big, big uh, 10,000 ton motor ship uh, Cambridge hit, hit a mine and sank off the prom. Uh, and then the next day, the city, American ship called the City of Ravel sank, hit a mine and sank off Cape Otway. And uh, the, the City of Ravel was the first American ship to be sunk in World War Two. 
So um, it's sort of a really, both of them are historic, but uh, this is really you know, <laughs> dipping America's toe into the uh, into the war. Um, so uh, after that, there was a there's a the submarine campaign by the Japanese because the Japanese said, I think when the uh, Yamamoto or someone like that said, like 28 divisions, you could take all of Australia, which, you know, <laughs> a few, few thousand people or a few thousand soldiers and Australia would be, um, yeah, taken, taken over. There was also a, a, a line called the Brisbane line. So Australia was aware of this, the government were aware of this. So they planned that the, everything above um, Brisbane could be burnt and scorched and left for uh, the Japanese. So that was a, the, the fallback plan and everything else. All the, all the defence would come down to, to Melbourne and Sydney. And it, I suppose it could be argued these days that uh, there's not much difference. There is, there is the scorched earth above Brisbane <laughs> in terms of thought. And so, so the plan was, what, what, uh, which year was this where things were sort of really developing at this point, Rex? So it was around the 1940s, yeah. Around the, oh, sorry, by 42. 42, that, I mean, it was really, really getting serious with, uh, you know, Australia being under threat. We were uh, being uh, attacked in Darwin and um, across in Broome and a few other places. So the Japanese sent one of their um, high-class submarines down to... Uh, down from the Marshall Islands, which is sort of, you know, a few thousand kilometres northeast of Australia, on the 5th of February uh, 1942, and this mission was to come down, and on board this, this submarine, the I-25, was 109 metres long and spaced 2,400 tonnes, and had a range of 26,000 kilometres, so it was a you know, big, 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 big submarine. And the Japs were just some miles ahead of with their submarine developments compared to uh, us or the rest of the world, where they had had provision had a watertight hangar where they stored a float plane on board. So the plane would be back, the wings would be folded back, and this thing would be skidded in under the bridge of the submarine into a watertight hangar. And when they needed it, they put a set of rails on. There was a set of rails, and this thing would be pulled out and assembled. And the uh, submarine was to yeah, pick up a number of knots, like it could do 14 knots. And with that e- extra bit of um, speed, the, the plane could actually launch off the submarine and fly around. It's just like, you know, size, bit, roughly the size of a Cessna or something like that. It wasn't defensive. It was just for spotting, um, it was used for spotting targets or doing reconnaissance, mission, reconnaissance missions. So that's what uh, this this submarine did. It came down, said, all the way from the Marshall Islands. Um, and then there was a precursor to the raid on Sydney. They actually did the same thing in Sydney. They launched the plane, you know, the plane flew around Sydney, saw what was there, and flew back to the uh, submarine, packed it up, and then the submarine went all the way down the east coast of Australia, right around the bottom of um, Tasmania, and then up, up again to just off Cape Wickham Lighthouse at uh, King Island. And from King Island, from there, they unpa- unpacked the plane again, um, and pilots, the pilot Nobu Fujita and uh, assistant Soju Akuda, they, uh, <laughs> they took on the mission of flying to Melbourne. So what they did, again, they launched off the, uh, off the bow of the, um, bow of the submarine 
you can imagine how risky this would be. I mean, you've got all sorts of sea conditions, and you know, we all know how rough it can be off King Island. And so the plane took off and flew north to uh, Cape Otway. So once once they had their bearing there, they then flew sort of um, east, sort of north, northeast of the direction to uh, Port Bonsall. Again, they picked up a landmark and then flew over uh, Port Arlington. So this plane, okay, it, it would be up in the clouds at, say, 1,500 metres, something like that, and then drop down to as low as 300 metres, pick up where it was, and then go back up in the clouds again. And so it headed more or less dead north of Port Arlington to the uh, Leverton Air Base. And it flew, <laughs> this is the funniest part, it flew down to a height of 300 metres above the air base and there was a, a bunch of people, a bunch of uh, personnel saw it and then finally worked out that they'd better get a couple of planes in the air. So they launched two planes and then a couple more took off and went to sail to go and uh, get, get out of danger. And they um, sent a couple of planes up to try and find this thing, lost it, and then gave up. And then the, the little, it was called a Glen, Glen um, float plane. And the, 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 pilot, the pilot, Japanese pilot, headed towards along the coastline and flew over the old Williamstown rifle range, uh, which was there and had a defence battery. And then the, um, one of the, the uh, officers there saw the plane saw it had a, the Japanese symbol on the side and decided he'd just ring for uh, permission before he start, started firing his guns at this thing. And by the time he did that, it was well past and on its way to Melbourne. So the plane went to, to Melbourne, flew over Melbourne, uh, you know, got all sorts of sites and picked up all landmarks and then flew down the bay to uh, View, well, to Cape Shank, where it picked up its... its Mark again, and knew where it was, and then you, you more or less just head sort of in a westerly direction to found King Island, and then back to the uh, submarine, and then packed up, and then the, the sub then went down to Hobart, and from Hobart they did another recce, and then across to New Zealand where more recce reconnaissance flights were made, and all this is without even you know, being shot at once. So it's just. It's just incredible. There's a couple of there's so many questions, Rex. First question I have is that um, given that this was, uh, you know, this was a, a mission um, clearly to, to, you know, get a whole lot of information, why would they mark the plane with a symbol? Why would they not actually have it, you know, in, in an undercover sense? Well, I, I suppose the only reason that uh, they would, well, I would, yeah, the only reason you can do that is you, you treat it as a spy. Otherwise, you can be shot under the Geneva war, I think. Of the, uh, as a, if you're a spy, you can be shot, but if you're a, uh, you, otherwise, if you're marked as a soldier, you're a pris- you'd be taken as a prisoner of war, and that, that would be the only reason I would see. Mm. And apart from um, a few, this was this is information that's really only become apparent in recent times. At, at the yeah. time, at, at the time, it wasn't well known, was it? Because you mentioned there's a few individuals yeah. who spotted the plane flying over various places, like you mentioned Laverton and and Williamstown, obviously, and then it's sort of done its little little trip around Melbourne and then back down to Cape <laughs> Shank. So people have spotted it, um, yeah. but but it was kept very quiet. How how was that even possible? Well, it didn't even make the newspapers. Mm. So I've done I've done research and it didn't make the newspapers. But a couple of days, a couple of days after that, there was a there was a RAF 
trainer pilots and they flew over the um, ammunition, they flew over the ammo factories in Footway and they were shot at. And then they, <laughs> there was all a lot of commotion, obviously, and that, that made the newspapers. But this flight, you know, super, the, the other flight was kept super secret. So it, something, you know, it was in the it was in the Williamstown and Footstray and that folklore that something that a this plane had flown over, but uh, it was didn't become you know really really well known until the two thousands really. And and Rex, what um what happened to that plane? Did it make it back to Japan? Yeah, it made it back to the Mar- they made it back to the Marshall Islands eventually. Yeah, because yeah, just packed it up and um, put it away and and then went back to the Marshall Islands. Wow, that's so sneaky. Yeah, so... Rex, do you know, is there, yeah. I was going to say, is there any um, record of, were there photographs taken by the pilot? Was there a co-pilot? Um, any any other sort of records that are, are still um, around? There would be records, well, there would, would be records in, in the National Archives because there would have had to be a report made and there, there would have been the reports from the Japanese pilots itself and the, 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 all the records were handed over after the end of World War Two, So, I mean, they'd be in Japanese, obviously, but there would be records, and I'm sure they would have been taking photos. And pre, pre-World War Two, the Japanese were actually... Actually, uh, when the merchant ships were in, in, say, Melbourne, they would do all they could, get all the uh, information on all the landmarks around, um, around the coast in Hobson's Bay. My um, great-uncle was a a lighthouse keeper in the Jelly Brown Lighthouse and, and all the time the Japanese Japanese would be coming over to his because uh, he was on the light, lighthouse which is you know a couple of kilometres offshore they'd always be trying to get up on board up up on the uh, lighthouse to have a look at all, look at all the navigation marks so they could mark them on their charts had been planning for years and years. It's fascinating stuff, Rex. I can feel a working dog movie or a working dog style <laughs> movie needs to be made to tell this story to a much uh, your to as broad and wide an audience as possible. Yeah, <laughs> maybe someone yeah, from we... Working Dogs listening and might get in touch with you, Rex. Well, they can give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing, willing to pay, play the part of my uncle, the lighthouse keeper. Oh, but... that would be great. <laughs> You'd yes. be perfect, actually. Rex. You'd be really good at that. <laughs> Awesome. Hey, thanks, Rex. That was fascinating. We'll have to move on. Um, But uh, looking forward to catching up with you again in a few weeks' time. Okay. Good to catch up with you guys. Look after yourselves. Yeah, you too. We'll we'll see you in person one of these days. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's for sure. Yeah, same. All right. Catch you soon. Thanks, Rex. See you. Bye. Bye for now. Rex Hunter there. Amazing story. I love that so much. I really want that made into a movie. Yes. (laughs) Just wanting to mention a couple of things quickly and then we'll put on a track. Um, We've had a few people who've reached out to us this week via our Facebook page. Um, You might be interested in this one from from Lisanne. Lisanne is a Triple R subscriber and and, uh, contacts us regularly and we always love to hear from Lisanne when she does. Um, She was uh, commenting on last week's show, um, which she enjoyed and said she has an idea for a topic, Mercury in Fish. And uh, so she's a big Devo fan, band member Remember, uh, Jerry Casal got mercury poisoning from eating fish um, and uh, was wondering whether we might
might want to do a, a segment on it. And I thought that we've done it before, but not for a really long time. So maybe it's time we revisited that one. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea because, uh, you know, obviously mercury is a, is a heavy metal that um, once it is in the waterways or in the environment, it doesn't really react with anything else except being very, very poisonous and it stays there as well. And so we do have locally, uh, you know, because we used to have so much industry in ta- mostly tanneries um, in the, uh, you know, along the Yarra River, uh, we actually have a, a lot of that kind of stuff in the sediments in Port Phillip Bay as well. And I'm, I'm not really across the, any of the research at the moment in the bay, but I know that worldwide it is a, it is a big problem. Mm. Um, so we will follow up on that one. Thanks, Lizanne. Um, Rob, who has contacted us a bit over the years with his dog, Spike. I don't know if you remember Rob and Spike are paddle boarders. Oh. And Spike goes out and stands on, on the on the board with his um, with his friend, Rob. Oh, that's Spike so Spike is great. the dog. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I got so that. <laughs> to, to give us a heads up on a book which is um, about to come out, um, or it has just come out, called The Accidental Penguin Hotel, written by former Yarra Keeper, um, Yarra River Keeper, Andrew Kelly. And it's a story of the first penguin to set up home at the St Kilda Harbour. Um, so it's a, it's primarily a kid's book, but really lovely. So. Oh, that's so wonderful. Look, any uh, any promotion of the wonderful St Kilda uh, penguin colony is a great one, I think. It's just so incredible that we have them there. So I'm very, very excited to read this book. We're going to uh, follow this one up. Thank you, Rob. Rob's written a book as well um, related to the marine environment. So, so many great books coming out shortly. So, thanks, Rob. And lastly, from Chelsea, um, who contacted us last week after Brett's segment on the America's Cup um, to let us know that um, – and uh, we read out a few messages from listeners, but um, we, we – uh, had to move on but um, she was saying her dad jogged into the office in green and gold tracksuit with a multicoloured LED flashing headband can you picture this <laughs> yes vividly it's very mid 80s and um, and then she visited the Australia too in 2015 after he died in honour of his love of sailing and his crazy passion for the race when she was eight years old she's actually written a really beautiful article um, which we're going to put a link to on our Facebook page it's in a publication called Eureka Street um, and uh, it's called our mothers called us little fish and it's her kind of um, memories of growing up on the Mornington Peninsula and, and, um, and you know, all of those experiences of growing up there, particularly in the summers down at the beach. So it's, it's really beautiful. So we're going to publish that one, put that on our Facebook page. So we thanks, will. Chelsea. Really terrific. Now, over the last 15 years, more than 2,000 organisations and 150,000 citizen scientists, just get your head around that figure, 150,000 citizen scientists have participated in the Australian Marine Debris Initiative. It's a collaborative partnership where participants have collected, sorted and documented the marine debris they've been collecting since it was set up by the not-for-profit Tangaroa Blue Foundation in 2004. This week, the publication Science of the Total Environment has published a study led by the University of New South Wales where 10 years of information from the AMDI database has been analysed with huge amount of work leading to the creation of a national map of patterns in marine debris. To tell us about the work, the map and some alarming trends and statistics from the analyses, we now cross to Sydney to speak to the paper's lead author, Jordan Gakutan from the University of New South Wales Science Centre for Marine Science Innovation in the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences. What a long title for your department. Good morning, Jordan. Welcome. Morning. Thanks for having me, and yeah, it is quite a long title, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Look, this is a huge piece of work. First up, congratulations on the paper. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was uh, two years in the making, but we made it. Now, um, I've briefly described the Australian Marine 
debris initiative, but could you maybe just take us through the database in more detail? What is this database we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So it all comes from the efforts of Tangaroa Blue Foundation, which you mentioned is the organisation that organised this database. So started in 2004, this database, and what they've done is... Uh, coordinated across Australia so everyone so when you have a group cleaning up a beach you all start and counting rubbish um, using the same methodology and what this means is that you can compare what they find across Australia so by 2009 we had a national coverage and since then we had an additional 15 million items in the database and Sorry. No, I was going to say 15 million items in a database. How do you know where to start with that volume of information? Oh, well, the, how we started was trying to improve the accuracy and reliability as much as possible. Um, so we know that with these kind of databases, there's some entries that might be estimated or extrapolated. Um, there might be some errors in how the data was put into the database. So for the first half of the study, it was really myself uh, and a few others filtering or coming up with filters to try and improve the accuracy and reliability. So for example, um, we wanted to see if people were putting uh, zeros at the end of every entry, and that suggested to us that they were just estimating what they saw on the ground. Um, and then after we dealt with the quality of it, we also wanted to compare with sites that were similar. So we only looked at ocean-facing beaches across Australia that were sandy. And I was just thinking back to when I did my PhD, Jordan, and I was lucky to have maybe one or two research assistants, you know, every now and then volunteers from, under, you know, undergrad volunteers to come and help me with my research. You had 150,000 participants to help you with yours. <laughs> Basically, yes. If you sort of kind of got your head around how many people have been involved and contributed to this, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge effort. And I think we calculated a number of hours, but... I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's just a huge amount of effort to get all this data together. And so this is their study as much as ours, just yeah, a huge, huge effort across Australia. Yeah, and a fantastic win for citizen science. I mean, this is where it can get you, right? Yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do now is we have this foundation um, where we have networks across Australia, but how can we push this further in terms of starting to look at more formal methods of sampling with citizen scientists. So um, that's some of the projects in the future, starting to look at how we could improve how the data is counted. So let's go to this paper in itself and look at some of your findings. Um, let, maybe start with some consistencies from around the Australian coastline. What were the main national trends that you found with coastal debris? Yeah, so <clears throat> it's quite similar to the rest of the world where you have plastic as the dominant material um, of marine debris. So just taking a step back, the study was marine debris, which is anthropogenic or like human-made items. And it was either intentionally or um, accidentally uh, released into the environment. So this isn't just plastic. It's also rubber, glass, ceramics, anything that's um, from wastes from... Uh, the products that we use and so 
when we were looking at what kind of materials we're finding, about 84% of it across Australia is plastic. And so we have hard plastics like plastic bottles, soft plastics, plastic bags, and also foam, so polystyrene. That's pretty amazing. 84% of all marine debris found around the Australian coastline is plastic, which means only 16% uh, accounts for everything else, all other categories, so glass, rubber, um, and, and the, other, uh, the other sources that you mentioned. That's right. And I guess we should, I should mention that it's the debris we find on beaches. So there's a few missing links, um, and the understanding of this is growing quite quickly, but we're still trying to figure out what happens to the debris that ends up in the ocean. Does it sink? Does it float? Um, so this is 84% just for beaches. Um, and there's different trends across Australia, but one thing we need to keep in mind is how this plastic or how different debris travels. Mm. So does it stay where you deposit it because it's heavy or it doesn't float or does it go thousands of kilometres? Yeah, and these are these are really interesting questions because we do know that marine debris can, can travel thousands of kilometres um, to quite remote areas and remote islands and remote communities, unfortunately, as well, that did nothing to deserve <laughs> waves of plastic uh, coming onto their beaches. Um, so, John, I'm really interested, is... What are the most? What is the most surprising thing that you found in this research? Yeah, I wouldn't say surprising because some a lot of these trends we've seen in other countries, but it just reinforces the fact that debris travels, and it might not be because of local communities, especially remote communities. They're not the ones responsible for all this debris ending up on the beach. It's coming from other areas or other countries or dumped at sea. And we see this across the northern shore, uh, northern coastline of Australia. So, for example, in far northern Queensland, in Cape York, we see huge amounts of fishing floats, of plastic bottles, things that have float, um, flotsam that have uh, come from other countries. And it's a major challenge for those communities. Um, Jordan, I understand you had a look at different types of zones around the country. Um, so there are five or six zones in particular that you were looking at. Um, can you give us a bit of a profile of what you uh, found from your analyses from some of the different bioregions? So um, there are five, I think, aren't there? There's north, northeast, uh, northwest, southwest and so on. Yeah, so these zones roughly uh, coincide with the states, although... They're what the federal government uses to manage our marine areas. So what we found was most of the plastic, or most of the debris, rather, is across the east coast of Australia. And this makes sense because there's a lot more um, population centres across the east coast. But also uh, there are trend different trends on the east coast as well. So we're seeing a lot more cigarette butts um, within New South Wales, as opposed to Queensland, and we're seeing a lot more fishing-related items to the south as well in Victoria and Tasmania. So we can start to see regional trends depending on where we're looking. That's fascinating. I wonder if there's a correlation between, you're talking about more cigarette butts in New South Wales, whether that correlates to more smokers in New South Wales or whether it's got <laughs> something to do with their actual, um, you know, their habits of what they do with their cigarette butts once they finish their smoking? 
So what we think is happening is cigarettes are um, made of cellulose acetate, which is quite dense, so it doesn't travel very far. It either gets buried or it sinks um, in, the, uh, in coastal areas, so it doesn't travel. And if you're sampling beaches that are near these population centres, as opposed to, for example, in Queensland when you've got quite remote beaches and not as many people visiting, um, that might be driving the trends in cigarettes. Yeah, fascinating. Hey, Jordan, we could keep talking, but we're, we're pushing it for time. How far, this is uh, part of your PhD research, how far through are you? Um, two and a half years. I think I have a year to go, but we'll see. <laughs> okay, and what's, uh, what's coming up in the next year in terms of um, further analyses and work that you're doing? Yeah, so trying to figure out uh, the trends in estuaries as well. Uh, we're looking at how this debris might impact different animals and habitats and just management in general. How can we inform national and local management with our findings? Yeah, fantastic. Will you come back and speak with us once, um, once you've done another chapter or two? Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. Particularly about those areas, I'm, I'm fascinated, um, and particularly with recommendations as well. It would be great to have you back on the program. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really interesting stuff. Yep, thanks for having me. Keep going. You've only got a year to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right. you so much, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Bye for now. Jordan uh, Gakutan there from the University of New South Wales. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, look, there is so much data in the MD database, so much. And I'm just thinking about all the stories that could be told with that that information and uh, all of the uh, source reduction plans that might come out of that as well, source reduction plans for for litter. Um, Fascinating stuff. I'm glad someone's doing it. (laughs) Oh, my God, what a job. (laughs) Now, it's 9.53. We have seven minutes till the end of the program. Fum, our last segment is uh, speaking with you about some great, very exciting work that you're a, a significant part of. Um, we have a bit of a, I'm going to share this with our listeners, we have a bit of a, a long-running joke here at Radio Marinara that every week I, play, <laughs> I program three pieces of music and we never get to the third one. <laughs> we thought today we might, but I'm looking at the time, wondering whether we can just launch straight into what you want to talk about. What do you think? <laughs> Let's do that because I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to break that streak of not playing the, the third song ever. <laughs> Should we keep our listeners in suspense? Because yes. I, I'm, I'm not kidding you, this track has been on my playlist, on my uh, run sheet since before Radiothon and we have still not managed to get to it. Maybe we should make it a competition. If you can guess which track it is, get in touch with us through our Facebook page. <laughs> yeah, do, actually. <laughs> You'll get a shout-out on the radio yeah. by the time we actually play the track. <laughs> yeah, it's a good track too. I love it. It's a really sweet little instrumental but we never quite managed to get there. Anyway, we're going to hold it over for another week. <laughs> Again. Um, yeah, so the Eco Centre is uh, running a new, a new project this year um, that is called, well, the working title is Marine Pest Rapid Response Team. It's a bit of a mouthful and I'm still I'm still working on or looking for a really witty kind of punny uh, working name for this for this project so you know get in touch with me if you if you have one um, but it is around a marine pests in in Port Phillip Bay specifically so it's a, uh, a Port Phillip Bay funded uh, project um, and it, it it we set it up to help out with the delivery of the Port Phillip Bay environmental management plan and one of the four pillars in that plan is around marine pests and specifically about you know what to do about them, how to prevent them from getting into the bay in the first place, uh, but also around community engagement with marine pests and a bit of education as well, because it, the, the, the education component of this project is 
is quite important because um, the uh, marine pests units uh, from the government, you know, where, where you can actually uh, call them in if you see a marine pest, uh, they often have to deal with instances of, of people, you know, sending them uh, photos of 11 armed sea stars, which are native species mm-hmm. in the bay, um, you know, murdered brutally on the beach and saying like oh actually i found a marine pest look i i took it out of the water for you and you know people on the other side of the line going oh no 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 that was that was native because they look a little bit like crown of thorns yeah and this has the, been the big problem for the 11 arm sea star all the way along because crown of thorns has had so much um, publicity yes through all sorts of documentaries and people see this sea star and think oh it looks like the crown of thorns it must be the bad one and yeah. it's not no, it is not. It's actually a really a really good species and uh, interestingly enough uh, also has been observed to be eating uh, Northern Pacific mm. sea stars, which are the pest species. So this this project is really around um, community education and also getting people involved to really looking after their coastline. Because as we know, there's uh, sea stars seem to have changed their tack a little bit when it comes to aggregating. So since 2019, we just kept getting all these reports from concerned community members that would see these things wash up in thousands or sometimes tens of thousands on beaches all, all along uh, Port Phillip and uh, wonderful community volunteers like Jackie Younger and Julianne Stewart from Earthcare St Kilda have been responding to that as much as possible by removing these things when they come into the shallows. Um, But obviously, you know, they live in their local area and they can't cover all the way around the bay. So this project is centred around getting people involved to um, get the skills, to upskill them, to recognise marine pests, in this case, Northern Pacific sea stars, but hopefully in the future, other marine pests as well, to keep an eye on the local areas where they love to snorkel, where they love to play, where they take their kids and go fishing where they love to go and look into rock pools and recognize it when pests arrive and then um, have will have infrastructure in place that will activate the local marine pest rapid response team that's made up of volunteers who can come out and help remove these pests in a safe way for the volunteers um, and also in a way where you know other community members can come on board and get educated and get um, sort of drawn into that activity. And it is really lovely because I know I know from Jackie that you know whenever she goes out and cleans up an aggregation, for example in Rosebud, she puts out you know a Facebook post. People respond and they all want to come and help. Mm. Um, and so, but there is no real statewide concerted effort or infrastructure to do that. And uh, and the department, um, you know, DELP is, they're, they're more concerned about preventing pests from getting here in the first place, which is totally valid. But what are you going to do when they're already here? Um, so there's not really a lot that is being done at the moment. And also we don't really know that much about how Northern Pacific sea stars live. So as um, we're hoping that as volunteers will will do these removal efforts, we're working with Deakin University with researchers there and just asking them what, what are the gaps in knowledge that we have about Northern Pacific sea stars? What do we not know about their lifestyle? Where do they go when they don't aggregate? Do they just disperse along the bay? Are there particular habitats that they prefer? 
and how how do they move and can we predict their movements as well so there's a lot that we that we are hoping to answer with citizen science observations uh, and I, I must give a shout out again to to Jackie Younger because she is probably the first person who has sent me a uh, photo of a um, Asterias the northern Pacific sea star eating a live 11 armed sea star and oh. we only know that it happens the other way around mm. and that's not that hasn't been known for that long I mean we've had heard anecdotes from divers observing it but we've we now have photos but Jackie has actually observed it the other way around as well so it's definitely um, very important to engage people uh, around this um, around this project and around marine pests that was a lot <laughs> can you tell I'm very excited about this project I'm very excited about it too and can we consider this to be part one of what will be an ongoing series yeah fun? absolutely this work's only just getting going isn't yeah, it yeah it's just getting started now so we're setting up all the infrastructure we're working on uh, an update of a uh, marine pest removal guide for, for volunteers as well there is a community webinar on the 11th of November so keep an eye on the Eco Centre um, calendar we'll put a uh, once it's all up I'll put a link on a Facebook page as well and that will be all about this project Northern Pacific Sea Stars with speakers around uh, marine pests as well so everybody is welcome Great. and I'll keep you in the loop. Thank you Farm. Um, thanks to uh, Jordan uh, Gatun who is uh, on our show today also to Rex thank you very much thank you to Kent so much as well. Hi this is Bron Burton thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.